0: I'm excited to go to the book, John. There are so many themes in John, so many things we could hit and talk about, but this morning we just kind of want to do kind of a a flyover of John Say, what is John all about? John tells us actually why he wrote it. We're going to get into that. But before that, uh, we need to talk about a broader concept uh, that would be good. Um, January of 1986 was a pretty big year for me. Does anyone remember 1986? Raise your hand if you cannot remember 1986. That's right. Some of you are young, adorable. That's that's cute. Sorry, it was a big year for me. Do you guys know why it was a big year for me? It was the year I was born, and so it was a pretty big deal for me. Because if I now some of you are calculating, oh my gosh, I forgot how young he is. He's such a child. Like that's don't do the math. That's okay. So uh, 1986 was the year I was born, and um, that's when I started. Life. And as we've been wrestling through John, John uses this word life a ton. And I've been thinking about just this kind of like, I wish we could have like smoke and thunder behind me. Life. And just like this ominous cloud of what is life? Because we use this word so often and it's such a difficult thing to define. What is Life Um, For me, I started life in 1986, depending on how you define life, right? And then uh, there's some big moments in my life. I could talk about these things that that were big in my childhood or or whatnot, but I remember um, salvation. I remember when God spoke to me specifically and told me to marry Nikki, and it's the best story I've got, man. It just like changed everything because I was trying to wreck my life, and God was like, no, you need to stop this and marry Nikki. I remember when God told us to have kids, Uh, I was terrified. It's like, I'm not going to do good at that. And now we have four of them, almost five. And uh, uh, obviously I'm up here. We didn't have Titus last night. We thought we were going to, and we didn't. But that's another life-changing moment. So it happened. We're about to have five kids. And any time, any day now, it's going to happen. I might just randomly run off the stage here in a sec because Nikki's like running out the door. It's like, we're done. Sorry. But like life happens, and we define life in different things. I'm really interested in this quote from Annie Dillard. She said, how we spend our days is of course how we spend our lives it reminds me of how i've spent my days i could list things like hunting lifting barbells uh people man i spend a lot of time with people i like to hang out with people uh, get get breakfast or lunches or coffees doing geek things i've done a lot of video games and working on computers and that stuff um Uh, television shows, man, how much of my days have been spent watching King of the Hill in the office. Gross, man. How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. And those of you who are more well-seasoned than others of us would say, man, I remember when I was younger and when I was less than younger, and now that I'm older, that I spent a lot of days, and, and my life has just been a collection of these moments that sometimes were fleeting. They just come and go so quickly. Uh, there's a famous song from a famous Broadway play that talks about how do you measure a year in life? 525,600 minutes, right? That's how many minutes are in the year of a life. How do you measure it? How do you measure that, right? In, in cups of coffee, in midnight, and whatever. It's all sorts of things. How do you measure life, right? It's a big tension. Here's a biology quote, biological uh, quote to define life. By the way, if you're interested, Google... Life definition. It's so fascinating. NASA has a different definition than most biologists. Biologists have a different definition depending on their background. Philosophers have a completely different definition from that. Scripture has an even different definition. It's fascinating because we take for granted life. And, and as a spoiler alert, I'll just say we use this phrase uh, uh, kind of uh, haphazardly. Like some people have a better life. Right now, you could think of something that would make your life better. We say, this changed my life, right? Right? what is this thing that could be better? What is this thing that's been changed? What is life? Biologists would tell us this. Life is defined as any system capable of performing functions such as eating, metabolizing, uh, excreting, breathing, moving, growing, reproducing, and responding to external stimuli. Does that sound like your biology textbook? Yeah. Yeah. That's annoying, right? Whatever. But it makes sense, right? And then you can read in that. You can all all of a sudden see the tension, right? Because we have this tension of like, when does life start, right? The Bible says God knitted you in your mother's womb. Life starts when God chooses to make life when conception happens. Not to make some great political point here, but that's what the Bible says. We'll get to that here in a minute. Here's a dictionary. Merriam-Webster defines life as this. The quality that distinguishes a vital and functional being from a dead body. I love that. Because it's pretty helpful saying, hey, what is life? Well, it's not being dead. <laughs> and that's helpful. That's actually really helpful scripturally. We're going to get back to that. Here's another one. A principle of force that is considered to underlie the distinctive quality of animate beings. Man, Ruach, anyone? We'll talk about that here in a minute too. Here's some qu- popular quotes about life. Maybe you'll appreciate these. I'll look this way to do these. Quapa. There are only two ways to live your life. One is though nothing is a miracle. The other is as though everything is a miracle. That's Albert Einstein. Louis Armstrong said, music is life itself. Where are my music people? It's like, dude, hey. Look up how many great people, philosophers, musicians, uh, historians have quoted something about how music is life. It's ridiculous. I removed eight from these slides. There are so many people that's like, dude, music and life, they go together in some miniature boy. It's incredible. Anyway, so uh, John Cougar told us, oh yeah, life goes on long after the thrill of living is gone. You guys know that? Little Diddy, it was about Jack and, okay, good. Yeah, you remember, right. Joe Walsh has reminded us that life's been good to him so far. Anyone? No classic rock people here. Okay, sorry. What band did Joe Walsh play in? The Eagles. Eagles, Thank you. (laughs) Hey. Uh, The great philosopher Winnie the Pooh says, life is a journey to be experienced, not a problem to be solved. Oh, bother. Right? Uh, Metallica said, life is ours, we live it our way. Anyone? Huh? Come on, somebody listen to Metallica here. Bon Jovi, uh, my generation, he had his, his song. don't, it's my life, right? Then uh, Rihanna said, so live your life, hey, whoa. Just when I discovered the meaning of life, they changed it, says George Carlin. Every man dies, not every man lives. That was a big quote from what movie? Do You remember? Yeah, that was a big deal, right? Don't close your eyes. This is your life. Are you who you want to be? Switchfoot famous album when I was a kid, Uh, actually I was in high school, but uh, there's a lot of quotes about life and it turns out the Bible and John get at life very differently. So we read these quotes about all these famous people and we read about all the smart people and all the biologists and we still don't have a good definition of life. What does it mean to live? And this might seem so meaningless and nebulous to you. You might be like, ah, come on, philosopher Dave, tell me what we're trying to talk about here. It's important because we use this word. You want your kids to have a good life. You want your girlfriend to have a good life. You want someone that you care about to have a better life. But what does that mean? Why do we say these things? And who decides? What is it? How does it? How, did you get to judge me and say, my life isn't as good as your life? Why? Is Elon Musk living a better life than me? I don't know. Like, who decides that? The Bible has some powerful claims about that. Let's read these verses again. John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word. More on that next week. We'll talk about how that connects to Jesus and what John's doing with in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. This Word... Jesus, spoiler alert, in Jesus was life. And that life was the light of men. John's going to talk about life many more times. There's a lot of verses I could go up here. Just do a word study. How many times is the uh, word uh, life mentioned in John? And just look at all the different times he says that. Jesus, in fact, says his famous verse. We quote it in here a lot. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus cares a lot that you know he's the life. But here in John 20, John defines why he wrote John. You want to know why we're going through the book of John? Well, John's going to tell you why he wrote it. It's really great. He just leaves it for us right here. John 20, 30 through 31. If you're a person who's ever looked at a syllabus or you've had to write a thesis, and you're like, man, I've got to get the main point out. Here's John's. He wants you to know. This is why we're reading John. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. The signs in this book are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. Jesus is life. And John wrote this book so that you would believe that he is the Messiah, the Christ, and that by believing you might have life. Uh, I want to camp on this word signs for just a second. This can come in a later sermon, but I'm a Bible nerd and I really just had to say some of this stuff. Uh, Maybe someone, another shepherd's going to cover this in a few weeks, but um, in the book of John, there are seven signs that map out how he wrote the book. And so there are seven main signs. Uh, Some people argue there's uh, seven and then the eighth was the resurrection. Some people argue that the seventh was the resurrection. Either way, John specifically emphasized seven signs around his narrative. On top of those signs, then Jesus is given seven titles in John chapter one. That's your homework. Go back and read John chapter one and write down the seven titles Jesus is given. There are seven uh, seven signs. Like I said, there are seven times Jesus says, I am the blank. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way that you like. There are seven times Jesus says that in the book of John. There are seven times Jesus just says, I am period. Why? Do you remember? Do you remember when God created the world? He said it was good. You know how many times he said that? Seven. Do you remember when we've said from up here a million times that everything comes back to Genesis 1 and 2? Everything. Everything. It's so crazy. God gave us a map, a pattern on how to read scripture. The reason that John cares about these sets of seven is because he wants you to understand, you know how God rested on the seventh day? Why did he rest? Because it was complete. Because it was finished. It was done. And so when John says, hey, Jesus is the Messiah, and you get done reading his book, and you see the seven signs, and the seven I ams and the seven I am thee, and and the seven uh, names, all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, this must be the Messiah, That's what John's trying to prove. And he says it right here. You can read through the whole book and get it through these patterns of seven and say, whoa, this is the completion. Who is this man? Who is this Messiah? Who is Jesus? He's the completion of all things. In short, he is life, he is everything. Jesus is the completion of all things. And he says this, why? Why do you need to believe this? So that you'll have life. You need to believe. We struggle with belief. I'll give you a quick dictionary definition of belief. It's to consider to be true or honest. That's a quick Merriam-Webster definition of what it means to believe. Here's what John has in mind for belief. And this is what the word believe means in all of scripture. To believe is to hold as true what the Lord has shown to be true and to be certain that he is fully trustworthy and will do what he says. Specifically in John that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. So it's to believe that God, what God says is true is true and to trust that what he says will happen will happen. That's what it means to believe. And John goes right here saying, hey, you know all these signs? You know, they're written so that you'd believe, you'd hold it as true, you'd pattern your life on it, you'd bank on it. Every part of your being would say, this is the true thing I know. And by believing that, you will have life. Maybe I'll do that. Every time I do this, you say life, right? When I go, uh, you say, okay, good. Let's not do that. That's annoying. Uh, so this is it. This is life. Now, we need to unpack something real quick. And because we need to unpack a huge, entire, long Bible concept, and I don't want to stand up here and do it for 25 minutes, then we have the Bible project. Uh, He says that you will believe, you will believe that Jesus is the Christ. Some new translations might say Messiah. This begs the question, what is the, so I need to believe, okay, he's the completion, he's life, he was in the beginning, he's the word, he created all things, but you're wanting me, John, you wrote this whole thing to believe that he's the Messiah. He's the Christ, the Son of God. What does that mean? Check out this five-minute video, it'll tell you what the Messiah is.
1: There's this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden.
2: And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be, except there's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it, Uh, avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right, it seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake, and it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God.
1: And Adam and Eve, they believe
2: the snake and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world.
1: Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean... This thing is a
2: problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives, even still today.
1: But there is some hope because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and
2: Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a
1: mutual destruction.
2: Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next... Key moment in the story when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great-grandsons, this guy named Judah, and he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line, and that the whole world's going to follow this king, and he's going to bring peace and harmony, and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards, and it's going to be awesome.
1: The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David, and he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher.
2: But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give into the snake. They choose evil. They go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad
1: that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground, and the big bad empire of Babylon just
2: takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promise King receives this wound because of humanity's evil, and then it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back, and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people.
1: But the Old Testament ends, and the snake-crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up.
2: And this is why, when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from
1: the line of David, judah and abraham
2: and he goes around israel announcing that the goodness of god's kingdom is here now and he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them by forgiving them of their sins and evil many people
1: are now believing that this is in
2: fact the promised king but jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself the fatal snake bite wound exactly And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the
1: dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself.
2: And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus' power over evil and death has now become available to us, to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But
1: even still, death and evil are
2: a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all, and he restores the goodness of the garden
0: here on earth. So the Messiah is the snake crusher, the one who's going to come and set all things right and bring life. Uh, let's uh, keep keep wrestling with this idea. Let's talk about what the Bible has to say about life. If Jesus is the Messiah, he's the completion of all things. He's going to come and bring life. Let's talk about what the Bible says about life. We already talked about this. In Genesis 1, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And he created stuff, and he said it was Good. good. Tov, right? And we've talked about tov and ra and how it's good. And then when he creates humans, right, he says there. very good. Ma'od tov. It means much goodness, right? It's the same word for strength. When love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, it's with all your muchness, to the fullness of your ability, to the fullness of goodness. That is what mankind is. Tov ma'od. It's very good, right? Which it kind of, when you start learning Hebrew, you're like, man, our language doesn't really quite cover it because the completeness of God's good creation is man. That's a little different than very good, but whatever. Because uh, I've had a very good sandwich, but I haven't had the completeness of goodness of sandwich in my life, right? Anyway, that's not in my notes. That's for free. But so God does that. Now, Genesis 2 or Genesis 1, 26, 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heaven heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That's like critters, right? Don't be weird about creeper language. It's just creeping critter things, things that crawl. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We are above creation and below God. We're middle management. We are created to rule. That's us, right? And we decided, no, no, no. We're not okay with middle management, right? We don't want to do that. We want to be top tier, top shelf. We want to usurp God. But we'll keep bringing the story. Genesis 2, verses 7 and 8. Then the Lord formed the man out of dust from the ground. If you've been into Lent, you've been reading these verses about dust like it's what God did. He created you out of dust. Is that all you are is dust? No. What a terrible evolutionary flop to communicate in biology. You're just some cosmic burp. There's clearly something else that makes you you besides a whole bunch of billions of years of whateverness. That can't that's not that doesn't cover it. We know that human is more valuable than that. This is what scripture says. He formed man out of the dust. And out of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, the breath of God, breathe. You are dirt and divine breath. Say, I'm dirt and divine breath. Dirt. Both things are essential. You can't miss either one of those because evil wants you to say, no, you're more than dirt. You could be everything. You could define it yourself. You could make a name for yourself. Live your life. It's all yours. That's what evil says, right? That's the temptation, the hubris of man. Let's build our great towers. Let's have our great technological revolution and let's be above everyone. Limitless is us. Look at us, 21st century man. We've arrived. We are above all. You're just dust. And the only reason you have life is because you have divine breath. Because he is life. Dust and divine breath. Uh, We'll cover this later when we talk about Holy Spirit. But the word there is ruach. And then it goes on to say um, that he breathed into his nostrils and he made man a living creature. That word there is nefesh. It means soul. It becomes a soul. You become something. You're not just of regular creation. You've been given divine breath. What other creatures were given God's divine breath? None. Just us. That matters. That matters for what it means to be human. What it means to have life. You are dirt and divine breath, with God's ruach, his animating force. Psalms 139, 13, 14. For I formed you in my inward parts, or for you formed me in my, uh, gosh, sorry. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful all your works. My soul knows it well, becomes a living soul. My soul knows it well that you created me. The author of Psalms 139 wants to know, man, God has been a part of this from the beginning because he is life. He is life. Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Isn't it great? From the beginning, God gave you work to do. We're not all meant to sit around and have leisure all the time. It kills us. It destroys us. You were created to do good work. Because the creator of good works created you in his image. So you were created to create good things. And I'll never stop harping on that because there's a reason why you're unsatisfied with how lazy and meaningless your life is. But there's also a reason why you feel like it's never enough. I've got to work more. I've got to become more. This is why Sabbath is such a struggle for us. How could we rest when we've got to go, 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 go? Our culture says it's never enough. You got to move. You got to be busy. You got to hurry. You got to accomplish more. You got to be more. He says, "No, no, no, no. God is the one who gives life. God is the one who completes things. It's in Him that you do work. Your work is defined by Him. And if not, how are you actually living life? You're not. You're constantly trajecting toward never-ending this rat wheel of stuff. Gave Him work to do. Verse 16, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Here it is. First command scripture. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die ominous cause you shall die you shall die so tell me the story do they spoiler alert do they eat the fruit yes do they die Ooh, tricky trick question they ha ha now walk into this with me they live hundreds of years after they eat the fruit hundreds how many of you have lived hundreds of years Yeah, none of us. And they eat it and they live hundreds of years. What's the confusion here? You will surely die. In scripture, death is not just measured by you are no longer living and in the grave. Death is measured slightly differently. Life is measured slightly differently. We see in Proverbs this this tension that happens all the time. Proverbs 12, 28. In the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. Proverbs 14 and 16 have a verse that goes like this. There is a way that seems right to a man. You ever had a way that seems right? Oh yeah, I think this is a good idea. But it ends in death. That's what the verse says. There's a way that seems right, but it ends in death. It's not talking just literal, you're dead. That that can happen, right? But in the language of the Bible, there are two trajectories. It's really important that you grasp this because otherwise we miss what it means to have life. It's a lie that evil shoved into us that, that life is just the absence of death. In scripture, every moment you are trajecting towards wisdom and life or death and foolishness. Catch that. Every decision you make today, everything you do, every way you talk to your spouse, every way you approach your boyfriend, every way that you approach your job, you are trajecting towards life and wisdom or death and foolishness. Every single decision. And we know that intuitively. Like, we just know in general. Even non religious people say, yeah, you make choices that are better or worse every moment. You're either getting healthier or not getting healthier. We're all getting unhealthy and dying in some way, but everyone understands this idea. Scripture steps in and says, no, no, no. There is life and there is death, and they are postures you take on, not individual moments. I didn't just experience life when I came alive in 1986, every day I'm experiencing life or death. That's what's happening. I don't just experience death whenever I die, as we would say die. When we're at a funeral, that person just just now having experienced death. The Bible would say, no, 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 there's been a trajectory. These things are constantly happening moment by moment. And then John 20 steps in and says, but these things have been written so that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Adam and Eve brought death. And this ripple of death and rebellion and this posture of death that we take on. So we have this idea that sin is this list of things you've done wrong. Like, oh, you did this, that's a sin. Oh, you did this, that's a sin. Sin is a posture that you have over you. It's a, a cancerous thing that's constantly killing you. And sure, we can define this is a sin and this is not a sin. But in general, you are consumed by sin or you're set free in Christ. Those are the options. You have life or you have death. Those are your trajectories. Ephesians steps in and helps us with this. See, life is from God. When we have a right relationship with God, we have been breathed into. He's breathed in our souls. We are dust and divine breath. But we've destructed that by saying, no, no, no. We're not okay with middle management. We're going to We're going to rebel. We're going to do things apart from God. But we only have life that can be lived with the Lord. Ephesians 2, check it out. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked. You know anything about walking dead? Y'all seen anything about walking dead? How many dead people know walking around? Stop thinking zombies, right? We get it. There's a show called Walking Dead. Zombie, zombie, zombie. Get past that, right? Why does that freak us out? We can talk about that culturally. Why is it such a weird thing to us? And we all freak out about this apocalyptic moment where people are no longer dead. They're actually alive, but they're less than human. And it freaks us out. And they'll like eat us and stuff. Why is that so fascinating? Because it's terrifying. We don't understand what to do. We don't have a framework for humans that are so less than human that, that all they're good for is dying or creating death, Right? This is why zombies are so And Paul steps in this language, and he gives that same sort of parallel. He said, hey, you are dead in your trespass sin, but you still walk. You're alive. Following the course of this world, the prince and the powers of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. In this death, we live in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind. We are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What is making them dead? Their sin and trespasses. Their rebellion apart from the Lord. They're living, but they're dead. Paul says, we were all like this. We were were walking around dead. Hear me. There's death in your life. You are trajecting towards death or towards life. And all of us have these things that are destroying us, that are corrupting us. This is why the New Testament authors are so passionate about looking to Jesus and following Jesus because he's the life. All of us have death that's weighing us down. Paul goes on to say, woe is me. Who can save me from this body of death? It's an understanding concept. There's this death that's weighing us down. Being apart from the Lord because he is life. So what's the hope? Ephesians 2 goes on. But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he had loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you've been saved. This is not uh, for, by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that anyone may boast. We are his work, not our work. We are his workmanship, created, made alive, In Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There are those of us who are walking around dead. We think we're alive, but we're dead. But those who know Christ, they're actually walking around and they're alive, they're walking in good works. We're saved by grace through faith. John 20, 31. These things have been written. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. We walk in Christ. The good works he's given us to do. This is why in John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus will say, we'll read it eventually. But he tells, tells, uh, tells the, uh, Mary, he says, I am the resurrection, the life. Whoever believes in me, though they die, yet they shall live. Catch this in Romans 6. Paul continues this analogy. He says, do you know that all of us who have been baptized, we'll talk more about baptism in a few weeks. We're going to do a whole week on baptism, on on John the Baptist and his baptism and Jesus being baptized and the New Testament people being baptized and all the baptism stuff. We'll talk about it. But Paul's using this as an analogy, this understanding of like, hey, going through the analogy of dead, being buried with Christ and risen again. That's his basic analogy. Do you not know that you've been baptized into Christ Jesus? You were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that Jesus, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of, in newness of life, because you're walking in death. And John wrote his whole book to say, hey, you need to believe in Jesus or you won't have life. You need to walk in newness. Of life. If Jesus is life, and we receive life when we believe in him, that's what John says, then then it must be the case that if we're not believing in Jesus, we're not having life. Like, I know this sounds so harsh, and it's hard to grapple with, but the people that you know that don't know Jesus, those of us in this room that are like, "Ah, I'm not really into this Jesus thing, you're not living. I'm sorry, I love you, you're not living because there is a life, and it's only found in King Jesus. Otherwise you're trajecting towards death. There's a reason why these things consume us and we don't have hope and we get buried underneath the crushing weight of the life around us because we're not experiencing life. We're becoming less than human, falling more and more away from what he desires. He wants us to walk in newness. This means if we are to walk in newness of life, hear this. This means that every time I choose to honor my wife instead of crush her with my selfish angry words, then I'm being resurrected in Christ. In the newness of his life, walking in newness of life. Every time you choose to shift what you're watching on TikTok, you choose to not look at porn, you choose to not give in to gossip, not hold those angry, uh, those people that you dislike, you hold them in some sort of angry contempt in your mind, not being a judgmental negative jerk because you decide to say, hey, I'm going to follow the ways of Jesus instead of being such a negative person that just brings everyone down because Jesus told us to build up in love. Every time that you fight for your marriage in Christ, you wrestle through reading scripture with your kids, your friends, your family, Every moment you choose not to take another pill to escape from the junk in your life, you choose not to go get drunk, you're not going to go get high. You're not going to live your entire life for video games. You're not going to get into this political nonsense that consumes your life and only makes you angry. Every time you choose to look to Jesus, you are being resurrected in newness of life because of Jesus Christ. Every single time. This is the analogy of Scripture. This is why John comes in and Paul and Peter and, and the author of Revelation, they all come in to say, this is life. Jesus is life nothing else will give you life your marriage cannot give you life your kids cannot give you life your porn addiction your desire to make a better job and have more money your pension your 401k the person you voted for nothing can give you life Jesus Christ gives you life. And I'm sorry that that you have the crushing anxiety and depression and frustration, and you can only get into this escapist mentality that you need another high, or you need hours of video games in your life, or you need some sort of porn. I've been there. I understand that. There's no life in those things. Because John says, I've written this so that you'll have life. You can only have life in Jesus because Jesus is life. And so the life that you're living right now, church, Everyone listening, the life that you're living, it's on two paths. It's heading towards eternal life in Christ or away from him, eternally separated from him in death. That's the option. And the only way that you have life is to believe in Jesus. That's it. It's the only hope. You're saved by grace through faith. Not something you do, but something Jesus did. This is life. This is life. Jesus is life, but these things are written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by, but by believing you would have life in his name. I want to read revelation 21, one through eight, as we, um, begin to close a couple more minutes of thoughts here, then we'll move on to the Lord's supper. The Bible Project video mentioned that, hey, this is going to end, like in the Bible, uh, something happens, something kind of happens to make all this right, because right now we look around and we still see a serpent needs crushed, we still see death, we still see people trajecting in death, we see people who need to have better life, brokenness, broken families, constantly hearing about divorces, people crushing each other, kids who are just traumatized for life. What's the hope if Jesus is life? Revelation 21.8. Nothing separating it. It's with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne, he says, Behold, I am making all things new. I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Of life to the thirsty, those who want it, those who come, those who believe. I will give to drink. They will have life. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God. He'll be my son. But for the cowardly, the faithless, those who don't believe. The faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, the liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur. This is the second death. Later on, we'll talk about with uh, Jesus and Nicodemus, how you're born again, right? If you're born twice, you die once. If you're born once, you die twice. It's that simple. If you don't put your faith in Jesus... Your fate is consistently dying every day that you're alive. And the tragedy is you're being lied to and told that you're living and you can have a better life. And you'll spend every day trying to be better and live. Junk will happen and then you'll die. And then you'll die a second death, eternally separated from God. Or you can start eternal life now, this moment. You can be resurrected every moment, every day. Through Jesus Christ, you can look to him and say, I no longer need porn. I no longer need to have this junk marriage. I no longer need to have all these things because I'm going to look to Jesus and he's going to make all things new. He's going to make all things new because Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. Jesus is the life. Whatever you've got going on that's not life, it's rejecting towards death. It can only be made new in Jesus because Jesus is the life. John 11:25, 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection, the life. Whoever believes in me, though they die, yet they live. John tells us why he writes all of this in John 20. These things are written, everything we're about to study in John. This is why it's written. So that they would believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, they may have life in his name. Do you believe in Jesus? Are you walking in newness of life and following him? What areas of your life are are dying or dead that aren't walking in newness of life? What areas of your life, like, man, maybe I, maybe I don't trust the gospel. Maybe I don't believe in Jesus in this moment. This is why we're studying through John. Look to Jesus, believe in him, follow, and live. What death are you still walking in? I want to ask during this response time, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper was given to us by Christ to remember Passover, to remember all the history of what God has done for his people, culminating in Jesus Christ dying, to defeat Satan, sin, and death. To bring you life. Here's the great irony, the great, the great trickery of words, the great confusion, the great paradox that God's given us. That through God coming down as the Son, as Jesus Christ, through His death, we get to live. Because He resurrected and is alive forevermore. And so putting our faith in Him, that's where we find life. Not just life eternally. Don't Stop believing that. Stop believing that your life is just rejecting to die and whisk to heaven. Poof! Jesus says eternity is now. This is eternal life, right here? This is eternal life. That they know, look to, believe, follow Jesus. That they look and follow the Lord. What, what are you living in death? What are you not believing? I ask you during this time of response as we're going to grab the elements and we're also going to celebrate the Lord's Supper and remember his life, death, and resurrection for our sins, for the newness of life. Also open your hands and say, God, what death am I still living in? Because there are things that still need resurrected in your life. There are things that still need resurrected in my life. I'm thankful for things he's already brought new. And I'm hopeful for the things that he's going to make new. Because Jesus says, I am the life. I make all things new. Why don't you stand and we'll pray together. You can respond however you need to. If you need to give your life to Christ, you say, I don't believe in him. I'm not walking in newness of life. I'm actually heading towards death, eternal separation. The things I think are life are actually killing me. Maybe you need to give your life to Christ. Maybe you need to be baptized and say, man, I need to, I need to commit this. Maybe you've never joined a church. Whatever it is, I don't know what the Spirit's moving you, but we're going to pray that the Spirit speaks to us, that we open our hands and we recognize the death that we're still living in. And then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. You can come and get the elements. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word that teaches and convicts us. Father, I pray for all the the sin and trespasses, all of us who are are walking as dead, I pray that you would remove the lie, remove evil. I pray your spirit would bring conversion, would bring truth, that those who don't know you, who aren't living life in you, that they would surrender to you. I pray that your spirit would move and we would see a movement of repentance that we would open our hands and say, God, these are deaths that I'm still living in and I need you. God, only your spirit can change us. The words you have spoken are spirit and life. Jesus, may we believe that you are life. May we see lives coming alive and newness in you. Guide us as we Celebrate the Lord's Supper, the things you've given us as as we respond right now. We pray your spirit would move. Teach us to look to you and live.